Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, can I please have your attention? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Redneck Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Uh, come on by, check out our wares. We've had a lot of great stuff already this week, and it's only, I believe, Tuesday. And maybe become a member if you can. So uh, today we have. Uh, Friend of the podcast, friend of the host, uh, fan favorite among uh, certain quarters of people who like um, to get the peanut butter of their theology in with the chocolate of their uh, economic analysis. And so we have uh, my friend Dave Bonson back on. He is the author of the new book, which I I blurbed. Uh, there is no there's no free lunch. Two hundred and fifty economic truths. And one of the things I like about this, in comparison to some of other of David's brilliant work is that there's no math, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> we'll get to that. David, welcome back to the podcast. Well, it is great uh, to be back with you. And I think I definitely get the jacket now. I, I think last time we said there was some ambiguity because my, one of my five times had been with David French and without you, yeah. but now, yeah. now we're clean at number five. So I think that's right. I think that's right. And you know, for the people who've been on with French, but not me, you know, we were going to get them the ones with the, um, the crappy zippers rather than like the, the, the good buttons, but now yeah. it doesn't matter. So, um, all right. So, uh, you know, uh, let's start with the book stuff and we'll get to, you know, team transitory versus team, whatever, and all that other stuff. Um, but, um, why this book? Why now? Well, you know, when you said, uh, for people who like their theology, peanut butter with their economics, chocolate, we have a word for people like that. They're called Christians. <laughs> um, I do believe that the book has a, a bit of a faith foundation, probably more explicit than some of my economic <clears throat> mentors. Um, but it isn't, it isn't an explicitly theological book. It, it is, it is, uh, economics book, uh, that leans heavily on, I'm quite certain well over half of the quotes are from people who would not identify as a, in a faith religion um, and yet did some of the best work, particularly in the 20th century. Hayek, von Mises, and Milton Friedman are three of my economic mentors, and none of them would uh, would kind of be in that camp. 
But I don't think we're winning this argument publicly um, it, it, to the extent that there's any kind of buzz for free enterprise from younger people. It's almost exclusively in Randian camps on college campuses. And, that, and that's a, a futile effort, uh, in my opinion, to defend the notion of free enterprise divorced from a more um, moral framework. And, and to the extent that we're talking about socialists and progressives, I think they're able to root their argument um, devoid of economic logic, but uh, with a sort of presumption of moral superiority. And I hope that this book pokes away at some of that. Uh, I've been saying this a lot in interviews. I think I wrote it more for people that are already kind of uh, intuitively favorable to free enterprise, but just aren't super smart at it, you know, haven't, haven't necessarily developed a foundation that they can go argue it in the public square. And if it persuades Bernie Sanders or something, then I'm all for it. But I, I don't think that's the case. I think it's more to be a reference book for people that uh, need a little bit more foundational basis for their already heavy impulse towards free enterprise. Yeah. I'd also add, you know, and we can talk about this if you want, but, you know, one of the things that I write about a lot these days um, I feel like Al Pacino and Godfather three, I keep getting dragged back into various debates on the right. The, the real slip, I mean, the left has been playing stupid footsie games with socialism of one form or another for 150 years. Um, I mean, I can quote you chapter and verse, you know, John Dewey and all that crowd, Never mind Marx. But what's new and dismaying to me is the way in which support for a lot of this stuff on the right is dissipating, you know, the sort of new mm -hmm. nationalism stuff, which, um, and I'm, I'm writing about this right now, but the, you know, we, I'm sure we've talked about this before, but you know, the, the fundamental mistake that I think the sort of Orrin Cass crowd, and I think Orrin Cass is a very smart guy and he's a nice enough guy, but, um, is they seem to think that the argument from Hayek was that the knowledge problem only applies to people we don't like who want to do things we don't want them to do and don't want in power, right? That like somehow, you know, the knowledge problem, the idea that experts can use their own intellect to plan and guide in the economy with predictable beneficial results. Um, that's a problem regardless of what your philosophical moral framework is. And just because you call yourself a nationalist and you're against the woke left doesn't mean you're going to be any better at mastering the intricacies of the market or conquering supply chain problems from your desk in Washington. This is a, you know, the problem with economic planning is economic planning, regardless of what your ends are. It's the actual meat and potatoes problem. And I think a lot of people on the right these days, particularly young people think, well, if we were in charge, we could, you know, help the working man and, 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 and fix the economy in ways that would be purely upside because we're smart and our motives are good, unlike those left-wingers. And Hayek's point really wasn't about the motives. It was about the, the technical limitations of individual experts to you know, plan a, a vast economy. And I don't think that the Orrin Cass crowd or any in this, um, you know, there's uh, different uh, shades of this stuff, but the kind of that we could name a few different people that sure. were probably all there are many rooms right in the mansion of post liberal yeah. integralism or whatever it was called. right yeah i think some of it 
is rank class envy driven. There's a sort of aesthetic that a lot of these guys are against. They've uh, and, and Oren's a former private equity guy who's really turned on private equity. Um, so there's there's a kind of distrust of the concept of capital markets in a lot of it. Uh, but I and of course there's the whole free trade subject and just sort of a abandonment of the law of compare of comparative advantage. Which which interestingly though, the very first time I was on the podcast with you, you were in my office in Newport Beach, and we were talking about how at the time there there was both from Bannon and Trump, there was an argument being made against, it was basically a pro-protectionist argument mm-hmm. explicitly. They weren't really trying early on to root it in human rights concerns or or cultural uh, pollution. You know, Now that's sort of the way this camp has gone. And I think that that's very interesting. But again, a lot of it, whether it's knowledge problem, whether it is the basics of free exchange, and how wealth is created, uh, opposing the class envy side that I think a lot of this Tucker anti-Wall Street crowd, the kind of right-wing populism is rooted in, all these things are sort of addressed in the book. And so I talk about how we have this huge avalanche of socialism, progressivism, some greater um, fondness of central planning, and yet there are certain mistakes that are being made on the right that are being rationalized by the fact that we have a better end in mind. And and I think you're right that the knowledge problem is a great example of one that both sides are really capable of getting it wrong. But fundamentally, I would argue the reason this Catholic integralism or post-liberal integralism or whatever the different things are out there, why they have found a temptation to move past what they've now decided or the crassness of markets or dissatisfaction with the Lockean liberal order. I believe is because those on the right attempted to defend, uh, Father Sirico calls this the free and virtuous society. And I think too much of our efforts were uh, focused around the efficiencies of capital allocation from free enterprise and not enough on the development of the human person. This is where someone like Yuval Levin, um, who's younger than I am, but exponentially smarter, is about as good as I think we have on the right and making this case in a Burkean mm-hmm. context. And I think that had that Burkean message stayed front and center since, uh, let's say, post-World War II, um, as Hayek, Friedman, and others uh, had their stab. And we forget these are like Nobel Prize winners, like in the 70s. Like they weren't as biased against us 30 years ago, right? Uh, even Bob Mandel, the su- su- supply siders are winning Nobel Prizes. You know, yeah, things have changed a bit now in academia around economics. But unfortunately, I think our appeal in the public square has been diminished as they have successfully characterized zealous advocates of free enterprise as Gordon Gecko or Ayn Rand, and and that was an entirely avoid entirely avoidable mistake. No, I, I think that's right, and you know, I have to say. You know, I mean, I, I've ranted about this quite a bit on here, but like one of my big complaints is that um, people like Yuval, Ramesh, um, uh, you know, people who you can disagree with a child tax credit or, you know, the specifics of the policy proposals that they were getting to, you know, Michael Strain is another one of these reformicons who talked about how 
you know, one of the biggest problems we have in this country is you wrote a great piece for, I think, National Affairs about this 10 years ago, is it's not that there aren't available jobs for people who want jobs. It's that they're not available jobs where those people live. So rather than maybe creating public assistance things, we give people a voucher to move to where there are jobs, you know, and that kind of thing. Those kinds of ideas were snuffed, you know, were, were, were strangled in the crib, not by the left, but by a lot of folks on the sort of Wall Street Journal editorial page right that did not want to veer from sort of a cartoon version of 1982 Reagan orthodoxy, um, which was an orthodoxy aimed at a specific moment and a specific set of problems. When you lower the top marginal income tax rate from 70 to 30, you're going to get most of the benefits from that cut and arguing about dropping it to from, you know, 38 to 36, even if I'm in favor of dropping it from 38 to 36, that's not as important as maybe some of these other things. Yeah. And so there's a lot of sort of guild priestcraft you're not real conservative stuff that, you know, that would have, that if it was allowed, if that sort of policy creativity was allowed in a sort of Burkean way to flourish, you might not have gotten this embrace of nationalism and, and these other things that we've now gotten that many of these people who were saying, oh, you can't do that because that violates the church of Reagan, um, are now the ones leaping into this, this new thing saying, oh, we screwed up. And I, that, is a great source of frustration for me because, you know, Yuval, who I agree with you is, is brilliant. Um, you know, he said all along, it's taking Reaganite principles, but applying them to the problems of today. And those problems change over time. You know, uh, the the problems of the, the working poor are different in 2010 than they are, were in, in 1980. And maybe we should, you know, try and figure out how we can apply those principles to fix that stuff. But now, it's the very same priests who refuse to admit some to a Burkean reform spirit that are now the ones who are, you know, giving it up wholesale to go embrace this new, you know, hot new thing of way, way of seeing economics and, and politics. Well, and I and I would say that if we had had a conversation on the right where we just debated those policy prescriptions. Um, and, and people, reasonable people disagreed with some of the conclusions that would be different than the way that that stuff was treated. Like I didn't agree with all of what I remember reading at the time that some of these things were going out, but I agreed with the principle behind it of trying to apply Reagan principles to, to a slightly different period in history that we had bigger priorities than getting the marginal rate down another one or 2%, things like that. Uh, I think there was room for reasonable men and women to disagree on some of the specifics. But what I don't think uh, we really should have abandoned was the principles that, and Yuval talks a lot about kind of training our moral sensibilities. There's a a very um, Adam Smithian uh, in his other book notion here that culturally speaking, um, most of what these guys that are worried about common good are upset about, I, I think would be prevalent in a Lockean liberal order, in um, a system of free enterprise pro- that was uh, that even had really thriving private equity <laughs> funds. Sure. Um, and, and, but we somehow thought it would be okay to separate the morality piece, and and then and so then that naturally led to a wholesale rejection of some of the policy prescriptions, many of which were perfectly reasonable, 
some of which, you know, would have, would have required a bit more debate. I do think there's an argument uh, for DC playing intermediary on some of the stuff that was proposed in the concept, context of the knowledge problem. It, it, it's still a bit problematic. And I'm no, you know, purist libertarian, but I still would have liked to see some of those things that were being suggested. What was it called at the time? The Reformacon? The Reformacons, yeah. Yeah. I think some of it would have been better suited at a at a local and, and state level um, from a policy administration standpoint. But but regardless, the idea that markets were a perfect mechanism for administering morality was, was it was never accurate. Uh, from Aristotle to Aquinas to to Adam Smith, it was never true. And and I think that the smartest folks that that guys like you and I have kind of grown up reading never said so. Right. Um, and yet we've allowed straw man after straw man to get built around our viewpoint, and we haven't done a very good job defending ourselves. I think there's a tremendous lack of first principles now now left. And that's one thing I'll say. Whether it, one is a bit more in the Chicago School on monetary policy or more Austrian. And monetary, both those camps do pretty much share uh, common ground on the concept of free enterprise and the human person, the sort of anthropology of economics. And uh, there, in my mind, the movements were hijacked by people who were willing to bring in a sort of secular rationalism to economics that was always going to lead to greater popularity of progressivism. Once you go down that path, the argument for the central planner is pretty compelling. It's it's pretty it's certainly inevitable, and and that's what's ruled the day. Um, and so maybe out of this COVID moment, uh, some of the right wing angst against the healthcare central planners will lead to rethinking their newfound interest in central planners taking over big tech, for example. Yeah. No. I, look, I, 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 we're going to be in just sort of violent agreement on this um and i should tell the listeners you know one of the nice things about the book is that it's it's not it's sort of a hybrid between a sort of a meditation on free markets and economics and human flourishing and a collection of quotes so it's it's um i don't want to be crass about this but it is it is really well designed as sort of a uh for want of a more lovely term a a bathroom reader <laughs> in the sense that you can dive in anywhere in the book and just sort of pick up from there. You can sort of, uh, you know, cause it's, it's 250 sort of, you know, different reflections, concepts, reflections in economics with qu quotes from various, you know, uh, philosophers, economists, you know, uh, public intellectuals that sort of contextualize it as a historical tradition, but it's just, it's, it's eminently readable in that context. I think there's a lot to be said for those kinds of books. That's what I tried to make tyranny cliches into. Cause I was inspired by Robert Nisbet's book prejudices, which is one of these books. Whenever I see it in a used bookstore, I just, if it's not crazy expensive, I'll just buy it and give it to somebody. Cause it's still one of my favorite books. I'm a big believer in the sort of like, you know, dive into a specific essay that commands your attention for 12 minutes or six minutes or 20 minutes, whatever it is. And you don't have to sort of do beginning, middle and end. And I think there's a real role for that, particularly, particularly for young readers who are looking to sort of find um, intellectual reinforcement as they waver and start thinking that Josh Hawley is saying, saying things. 
Um, well, I think I think that the first of all, have I ever mentioned that Tyranny of Cliches is a really underrated book? <laughs> <laughs> you haven't. I have a from time to time. <laughs> um, the I think you're right in it, it, like the popularity of Twitter, the the kind of bite sized appetite people have for things. Um, but the difference here is that instead of it being um, what a, what is the character limit now on Twitter two two eighty I think something like it, that. It, 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 this is longer than that and it's not meant to be just vile venom of the most anti intellectual sort known to mankind um, but it is meant to be pithy and and I think that it will prompt some people to read a bit more. But even though it's a bad example for a one-page reflection, which is how my book's written, Hayek's essay, uh, The Use of Knowledge in Society, is 17 pages. Mm-hmm. And when I read it and fell in love with it and couldn't stop reading it, it prompted me to then go read pretty much everything Hayek ever wrote. Yeah. And I became a long-form Hayek reader out of starting with that essay. And I, I think that there might be some pages of this book that could prompt people to dive in deeper. There's a lot of quotes of Yuval. And, and I think if anybody reads it and falls in love with some of the, the wisdom of his uh, quotes and Googles him and finds some of his longer form essays at, uh, at National Journal, it, it's, he's going to have a new fan for life because that stuff is golden. Um, but, but even Walter Williams, Thomas Sowell, they were really effective rhetorically they could be provocative, but then, but then, the, if you looked under the hood, it just became more fulfilling. You know, really good stuff. Yeah. So I'm looking at this quote um, in the human flourishing section from Deirdre McCloskey, who mm. you know was a big influence on me for Suicide of the West, and and it's you know she writes by contrast, keep on with various versions of old-fashioned monarchy, or with slow or fast socialism with its betterment killing policies, protecting the favored classes, especially the rich or the party or the cousins, um, bad King John or Robin Hood in its worst forms of military socialism or a tribal tyranny. And even at its best, a stifling regulation of new cancer drugs. And you get the grinding routine of human tyranny and poverty with their attendant crushing of the human spirit. The agenda of modern liberalism ranged ranged against tyranny and poverty is achieving human flourishing in the way it has been always been achieved. Let my people go. Let ordinary people have a go. Stop pushing people around. And one of the reasons why I like the quote is I'm reviewing this book, The Reactionary Mind, which is a fun read. Um, I have a pretty negative review, but it opens, the first chapter opens with making an impassioned, sincere argument that, that, serfs lived a better life than we moderns do 800 years ago and he's being puckish and the you know, author this michael warren davis guy is being puckish and clever and you know and thinks he's he's sort of a neo-chestertonian and all that kind of stuff and my problem with that is that you hear versions of this kind of thinking all over the place that people were happier you know when they had a coherent social or an integral social order as one reviewer of his book put it um, and that just is wrong on the facts. You know, <laughs> serfdom was one notch above slavery. People were miserable. People lived horribly backbreaking lives where mo- the, most of the fruits of their labor went to their feudal Lord. And one of the, this is sort of one of the points of suicide of the West is that man doesn't live by bread alone, but man can flourish a lot better 
when he has bread. And the best way to have bread, you know, by which I mean, you know, metaphorically, material comforts, uh, modern medicine, all these kinds of things, these things are provided by the market system. And they've never been provided for the average person by any other system very well for very long. And the, the idea that somehow people who believe in the free market aren't actually concerned with the plight of poor people and hardworking people, I think is just fundamentally propagandistic and, and, and slanderous because the side of the people that you're, you quote in this and the side of the people that we take our intellectual light from, these are the people who moved humanity out of poverty. These are the people who moved humanity out of, you know, grinding toil and early deaths. And that's supposed to be what politics and government is for to a certain extent, according to the left. But if, if the left can't be in charge about how to do it, they don't want to do it. That's the problem is they don't like the freedom of the market um, because it allows different people to live differently in ways that they think are wrong. Well, and I, I think I could argue <clears throat> that what you're saying is actually the generous interpretation of their motive. Because it is possible that, as you say, they simply are driven by the need and desire to maintain that power and control over how this these social affairs are ordered. But it's also possible that they simply have that low of an opinion of half of humanity, that they just simply believe that there really is half of humanity that is productive and capable and creative and innovative, and half of humanity that is really worth nothing more than to live at the uh, generosity of the other half, at, at, uh, as recipients of the bounty that the first half creates. Now, myself as a Christian, and one who believes that God created all people, not just half, and created all of them with creative capacity, productive capacity, dignity, I can't accept that conclusion. So not only do I find the idea that the, the elite, anointed, central planner needs to have their hands on the levers of power, but I also reject the idea that the um, subjects they claim to want to help are in need of their help and are, are somehow cut off from entry into civilization whereby uh, people can be productive um, and develop, as, as your old friend Arthur Brooks talked about so um, articulately for many years, that earned success that we know is a sociological tool to happiness. It, it is mystifying to me uh, all these years later that the progressive and socialist is um, deemed the one who has compassion for others when I think they have such a remarkably condescending view of at least half of humanity. Yeah, I, I think you can make, you can certainly make that case of specific historical personalities you know i mean there was a lot there's a wonderful book i think his name is john Kerry, called the intellectuals in the masses which um you know the intellectual classes which had only really been part of the sort of nouveau aristocracy for a very brief period of time before they started to be horrified by mass society where like you had you know common people who had enough money and enough education to have opinions of their own and live lives the way they wanted to live. Um, and you had, you know, people like Bernard Shaw and George Bernard Shaw saying, you know, dreaming of gas chambers long before anyone envisioned the Holocaust coming about, 
you know, you had the progressives, a lot of the progressives in the orbit of, say, the New Republic, who were really passionate about sterilizing the the unfit bottom classes because they had these notions that were, you know, that they slapped pseudoscience on top of that justified their sort of, you know, their their place in this new aristocratic way of thinking. Um, I just, my problem, my concern these days is that this is, this is a feature of, this, put it this way, the stuff that we're talking about is an ideological manifest, manifestation of the left historically, but um, at the same time, it's, it comes out of the human condition and simply saying, well, you're a conservative um, or that, you know, frankly, or that you're a Christian or a believing Jew or any of that kind of stuff that doesn't automatically make you immune from the corruptions that let that kind of thinking come along. And so when I hear people like, was it JD Vance? Was it, I can't remember was either JD Vance or Holly said that, you know, we should take, we should confiscate the assets of the Ford foundation. Oh, that was J.D. Vance. Yeah, it was J.D. Vance. Confiscate the assets of the Ford Foundation and give them to the working man. Now, if you had told me that there was a senator who, was said, who said something like that, and it wasn't the Ford, but it was a different foundation, and it was 10 years ago, I would assume you were talking about Bernie Sanders. Because that's, yeah. methodologically, philosophically, there is no difference in that kind of thinking between the, the sort of the new right types and the old left. And I, and why so that stuff, I get so that stuff gets tricky it, because you write about this. I think I'm not just, you know, kissing up here. Um, I say all kinds of bad things about you behind your back, but you write oh, about this more, <laughs> you, you write about <laughs> this more capably than anyone in conservatism, the kind of era we're living in right now where everyone's forced into sort of just performative hijinks. There is an economic argument as to why this let's confiscate from Ford Foundation because we don't like them stuff is a really, really bad idea. But see, the people saying it don't mean it. They do not believe in the economic, in, in, the, in surrendering private property laws um, and, and intervention of the state into the, uh, you know, the, these types of things. For the most part, that kind of stuff is purely performative and, and geared towards a certain audience, and it's to rile up people in the political moment that we're in. And so it's tricky because you want to use an economic argument against what is really um, a sideshow. And yet there is a real economic argument for taking down foundations and philanthropy, the kind of stuff that Myerson was fighting at Philanthropy Roundtable for years. Like the left does not like private philanthropy. It's really true. J.D. Vance doesn't have a problem with private philanthropy. He's just being a jackass. And yet... What you know, I'm trying to like use the argument I would make against the left to counter him, and that's sort of the thing that again you write about all the time so well. It makes it very difficult for the remnant to to fit, to match the tool to the problem because uh, people are not operating in good faith. Yeah, I mean, look, I, I look. Do I, I? You know, Irving Crystal was talking about the problems of left wing philanthropy 40 years ago, and I agree, it's a huge problem, and. There's also a huge problem with corporate leader and you know, the whole woke corporation argument that we hear all over the place these days. This is a really old argument. I mean, you can find clips on YouTube, I'm sure, of Milton Friedman talking about why corporations shouldn't get engaged in social justice stuff and that their only obligation 
is to shareholders. And so one of the things that sort of bothers me in about- fa- In fairness, by the way, he said their primary obligation, but- But right, but you get my yeah. point. It's like, again, it's just an old argument is my only yes, point. There's, there's a wonderful book that came in the 70s called The Suicidal Corporation that made a lot of these kinds yeah. of arguments. And, and, um, and so, but one of my concerns that I admit I'm more concerned about than a lot of other conservatives is that you say these things often enough where they're allowed to go out uncontested, even celebrated on Fox News on a nightly basis. There are a lot of normals out there who are going to, who are very partisan right now, who really don't like the left for all the, for, for good reasons and bad. And they, they don't know it's performative necessarily. And, you know, the, a lot of the college kids, they see this stuff about nationalism and, you know, how awesome serfdom was. They think these are the hot, exciting new ideas. And, you know, I, I think that one of the one of the roles of, you know, National Review style conservatism is to police bad ideas on its own side, because when you let these ideas go out uncontested to form a popular front thing with the against the left, you convince large swaths of your own side that these are legitimate ideas that are perfectly consonant with modern conservatism. And they're just not. I mean, you know. I bet you if we did a survey, we could actually probably find out that on net, the 1% leans left. Um, it may not. I don't know. But let's say for the sake of argument that it does, right? We certainly know that Democrats have got more and more, more money from Wall Street in a lot of election cycles than Republicans did for a long time. And um, you could take that fact and say, well, these guys are funding our enemies. So maybe we should have a wealth tax because we can spend this money better than those guys can. I'm against a wealth tax, and I know you are too, on fundamental moral and, and, and empirical grounds. And it doesn't really matter who you're trying to punish with a wealth tax. I think it's just, it's unconstitutional, it's immoral, it's dumb, it's, it's counterproductive. And it doesn't matter if we could somehow craft a law that only took the wealth of the George Soroses and left, you know, the, the good billionaires alone, it would still be wrong. And that's an argument that I think conservatives, that's a kind of argument that, that, that influencers among the sort of conservative, you know, uh, elites need to make more, even if it's inconvenient for partisan purposes. I totally agree. And, and the left has a big problem on their money and politics creed. They wanted to go after Charles Koch so badly that they, if they ever got what they wanted, they would have taken out like David Geffen and George Soros sure. and exactly. and so forth. I um when I think you're right though. I there, there are is an audience to that performative stuff about let's confiscate the assets of Ford Foundation um, that we should be concerned about. There are some people that like it because they were never really movement conservatives to begin with. Um, but I think that there are some that are impressionable, they're angry, and they're in this moment in time, and they're just people that I hope read stuff like what you write, or read National View, or read my book, or, or things like that. But you you know this as well as anyone. There's nothing we can do but keep telling the truth. Um, there, we're not going to get J.D. Vance to say, you're right, I shouldn't have said it. Um, you know, I, I listened to uh, Ben Shapiro had Tucker Carlson on maybe two or three years ago, um, after he had said we need to eliminate the automated driving, the uh, attempts to drive, to, to no pun intended, to drive 
an automated trucking industry that we were going to put truck drivers out of business and and that this whole thing just had to stop and and Ben challenged him on it and it was clear like Ben had won the debate he's pretty he's pretty good at that and and Tucker just said yeah I don't, I'm not changing it was like <laughs> I, I, I'm, <laughs> this is how I feel it is what it is and I and I remember thinking a lot more people probably listened to that than would listen to the, the audience I have. And I hope a lot of people heard what I heard, that Ben just beat him on the arguments. He, 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 he won uh, on the merit of the case, and people could still feel really concerned for truck drivers. They could still be really mad at, at some of the things happening culturally, but that you know there was kind of a principle-based argument. And I think that idea of selectively applying principles has got to be called out every time it happens for what it is, which is not principled. And, and that's a very difficult thing for economists is the, the uh, road to killing an economic principle always starts with qualifications to the principle. And this is something Milton Friedman did better than any economic teacher of the 20th century, is he listed out the principles, he wrote them on a chalkboard, and, and er he got everyone in the class to say they agreed with everything. And then he turned the chalkboard over and put it to the side, and he went about teaching the class. And it usually would take two days or two weeks till something would come up where people wanted to violate one of the principles. And he'd have to wonder why wage controls were okay if we had said we believe in, in free this and that. You know, you get mm -hmm. the idea. And um, I, I'm finding it easier to do in the last year than I did in the four years prior to just sort of take a lot of comfort in a consistent application of the principles. There are some things that I think are a gray area. I like disagreement on how to apply principles with people of good faith. I don't believe stuff like that Ford Foundation stuff is of good faith. It wouldn't surprise me if Tucker was being earnest about getting rid of, the, I mean, he's being ignorant and it's a really bad idea. But I wouldn't be surprised if he really means that, actually, that automated uh, path uh, uh, for trucking needs to be eliminated um, wholesale. I think that there is a, a kind of protectionist instinct that's become a bit more sincere with some of these guys. But either way, when everything that we're debating right now around free trade, around tax policy, around minimum wage, principles have existed for a long time, and we don't need to update how we feel about the principle. We just need to challenge ourselves to do better application of the principle. Yeah, no, I, I got no problem with that. And, and, and again, I also have no problem conceding. I mean, this is a point I made for years. I made it in the, I, you know, I, I wrote the new introduction or preface or whatever for the ISI, what is conservatism thing. And, and, and one of, you know, 10 years ago or something. And, you know, one of the points, you know, I've made for years is that one of the things I always liked about conservatism is that, yeah, it's dogmatic, but it's actually aware of its dogma and it talks about its dogma. Dogma just, you know, means those things that you, you believe are true, um, and right, you know, comes from the Greek meaning seems good or something like that. And, um, and one of the things about conservatism, and I mean conservatism broadly speaking, so as to include a lot of sort of right libertarians and others, is that we tend to recognize that there are, that sometimes our principles are in conflict and that you need to sort of, you know, that, that 
you know, freedom and, and order or liberty and virtue, these things can sometimes, um, there can be tension between them. And so we have, but we have to hold, we have to hold that tension, uh, and celebrate it uh, as part of the human experience, as opposed to seeking, I think, I think that that tension is a very important part of being a conservative, that those principles that are in tension are not paradoxical. They, right. they're, they're, and, and right now what we see are people that basically take pride in not caring about one half of the equation, meaning um, you got, there's almost this like sinister kind of mocking, you guys can have your economics textbooks and your Bill Buckley lectures and your ISI white papers. There's truck drivers going out of work and I won't stand for it. And that sort of anti-intellectualism, it's incoherent. Uh, it, it, it is kind it is immoral in the sense that it's sort of celebrating the idea of abandoning thoughtful principle as a means of ordering the affairs of society. Like there, there's no way we'd ever stand for that from the left, but that, that has become more acceptable in the circles that I think were formerly occupied by people that had the conservative roots you're describing. And I, all I can tell you is I think that it's going to come back. I think the good guys are going to win. Which I'd like to think just, so too. I mean, I, I like. I mean, we can move off of this, and so this yeah. will this will provide a wonderful segue for supply chain induced inflation in a second. But I think mm. the best place to illustrate this point, and and, and somewhere uh, the hairs on the back of Scott Linscombe's neck are going up. The best place to sort of illustrate this point is that our is is how we run our ports in this country. Um, there that that Tucker argument about truckers. That, that impulse to protect certain jobs at the expense of efficiency and, and lower prices, well, there's probably no better case study than the stranglehold that the longshoremen's unions have yep. over our supply chains. <coughs> and if you, can, if you look at, you know, Scott pointed this out to me, lists of the most efficient or, or, or highest capacity ports in the world, the best ports in the world, the U.S. is, it's like, it's not even on the first page of the list. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's in the low hundreds or something like that. And you can say, oh, well, that's necessary because it keeps longshoremen em em employed. But, you know, there's the Bastiat, which you talk about, you know, you quote Bastiat quite a bit. Um, yeah. There's the Bastiat point about the unseen here, which is that, yeah, but the bottlenecks that, that those systems, including like stuff like the Jones Act and whatnot are imposing, are making working moms pay twice as much for milk. It means that families aren't getting their Christmas presents. It means that the supplies to build affordable housing aren't here. And the, and the supplies that are here are 10 times the price that they should be. And you can go down a long list of things. And so when you try to capture, to freeze in amber one economic arrangement in one part of the economy, it has cascading knock-on effects in other parts of the economy that, um, that gets to the fundamental. This is the knowledge problem in a nutshell. Is that you well? Know, it's also it's the free lunch problem. Right. Right. It, 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 if there was not a free lunch fallacy at play, I think it'd be wonderful to do that. Mm -hmm. um, but because of trade offs and the laws of trade offs, we can't. And so, if somebody wants to make the argument that the labor um, conditions for longshoremen is more morally important 
then um, the delivery of Christmas gifts, or you know, you can go down the kind of different uh, uh, trade-offs that are at play. We we can have the discussion, but that's not what we're doing. We're not creating a hierarchy of economic outcomes. What we're doing is pretending we can have our cake and eat it too. Right. And that's why Friedman's analogy of the the free lunch is so uh, useful. And that one of the things I've been arguing in interviews is that this is a great example of people. Uh, what is it? Benjamin Button was the the baby that got uh, uh, the old guy got younger throughout life, right? Right. I think at age five, all of us know that there's no such thing as a free lunch. That when we're trading like toys on the playground, like I have my bubble gum and you have your baseball cards, and you and you just know you can't have it all, so you're you're weighing cost benefits as to like, well, I could trade this for this, but that guy has that, and maybe she'll give me this, and you, you go through this process. All of it rooted in the fundamental notion that there's trade-offs and there's scarcity and I can't have it all. And all of a sudden adults, especially policymaker adults, have decided you can, that we can give the longshoremen a, a four-hour, you know, three-day, a four-hour day and a three-day work week or whatever, and and that we're still gonna get uh supply uh you know circulating around a free economy and this, that, and the other. Uh the the no free lunch thing is probably one of the most important principles for grown-ups to readopt. Um all right, so as we brought up supply chains and and um and we are in the midst of a grand hullabaloo about inflation. Um fortunately this will be airing either this might not be airing for like a few days, but it doesn't matter because the hullabaloo will last a long time. So but people should know we're recording this on Tuesday, November 7th, uh, 16th. Um, if by the time this airs, the inflation problem is gone, then you and I are miracle workers. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, you, um, you have strong views on, on the whole, is it transitory? Is it, you know, is it uh, endemic or whatever? The, what is the official term for opposite of transitory? Um, I don't know that there is an official term for the opposite because I don't think there's an official term for transitory. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, if one simply is referring to the length of time by which the rate of inflation is going higher, then everybody is in the transitory camp right? because nobody believes the rate of inflation is going up to infinity. Um, uh, even people that are very, very, very concerned about inflation. And by the way, if the rate of inflation goes to 5% and stays there, you are still destroying purchasing power at a very rapid rate. Right. But I don't think that this transitory thing is helpful, whether one is for it or against it. It ha- is more about the cause of price increases. That, to me, is where the debate is, not the length of time that the price increases will be with us. And so much of this debate is around things that are not debatable. There is not a a serious argument about the fact that where prices were in the summer of 2020 in the middle of a lockdown compared to where prices were in the summer of 21 had a significant base effect that was skewing the numbers. Mm -hmm. And so then what we've done coming into the late fall is we have seen that even apart from the base effect, comparing really low numbers from 2020 to where we are now, that even on a two-year average basis, that the rate of inflation, the rate of the price level, 
has moved a lot higher. Now, when people say 6.2% from CPI last month or last week, they're comparing that to a very low number from 2020. But if you go two years, it's still 3.7% mm-hmm. with food and energy. It's 26 without food and energy. I never like doing the, the without food and energy thing because I think people eat mm-hmm. and I think people drive. So may and as well throw it all out there. And, yeah. 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 But um, to me, the, the issue that I feel very strongly about is that the and Ramesh and, and others on the right are on my side here. But it's people that manage money for a living that know I'm right, that it is not a monetary inflation when the bond market at the 10-year and 30-year are, are pricing in a long-term yield that is lower than the current level of inflation. That there is trillions of dollars of very, very, very smart people and very, very, very powerful people's money that are not forecasting longer-term inflation. Um, And so the thing that I've been trying to write about is most of us who are arguing the Fed is causing this, because there's no debate that prices have gone higher. And if that's what we're calling inflation, but I'm I'm a a monetarist on this subject, inflation as too much money chasing too few goods and services is a better definition. And I think we're dealing with too few goods and services. And I think a lot of that is a policy problem. I think a lot of it is sort of idiosyncratic to the weirdness of the COVID moment. Um, I would point out that the biggest doomsdayers right now about it were equally doomsdaying a year ago with the exact opposite position. A year ago is it was no one will ever demand anything again. No one's ever going to fly again. We've destroyed everything. There, no one's going to shop. No one's going to spend. What are we going to do? And a year later, it's, oh, my God, there's way too much shopping and too much activity. Demand has come back way too strong. Demand came back strong because of human action. Uh, people were locked up a long time. They want to go travel. They want to go act and be human. And uh, the supply is simply not able to keep up with it. And some of that is a massive policy failure. Uh, and some of it is not. But my point is that when you grant that the politicians are creating the inflation, you are empowering the politicians because Mm -hmm. they want to create the damn inflation. Mm -hmm. They're not going to say it, but they want it. And the argument for 30 years in Japan, the European Union, the United States, has not been, oh, look at this 1970s-style inflation problem. It's been, look at all these spendaholics that can't create the inflation because of the diminishing return of excessive monetary and fiscal policy. So that is my argument. And I have a 1.5% 10-year bond yield that tells me I'm right. Okay, so I want to, let me see if I can translate this into Jonah speaking. You tell me where I get it wrong, right? There's, there are two kinds of inflation for our purposes. There's supply-side inflation and there's demand-side inflation. Demand-side inflation is Weimar Germany, just way too much money. Right. This is your point about chasing too few goods. It's not that the number of goods is shrunk, but it's that the amount of money around has increased so much that it makes it uh, it just bids up prices. That's something that the Federal Reserve can deal with because it has to do with the money supply. Supply side inflation is when you have this literally the supply of goods and services not being able to keep up 
with demand, that it's shrunk or it's slow or the goods and services are unavailable. And that, that's what we get from a supply chain crisis, right? Which has, you know, which is a stand-in for also all sorts of weird labor shortage issues and, and, and policy issues around the world about when you turn off economies and then you try to cold, cold restart them, you would get all sorts of messed up things. I mean, I have friends who were, a friend of mine who's in private equity who was saying, you have no idea the problem of just getting these contain the problem of just getting these containers where they need to be. You know, the spot price, you know, two years ago was two thousand dollars. You know, and he got quoted a price of thirty thousand dollars just because the, the empty empty container needs to get back on a boat and be shipped to someplace where they can reload it, and it's all mismatched. And so you have a supply side problem that can only be fixed really by wrenching out all of these bottlenecks and inefficiencies in the system, and. So, but the question, so that's basically right, right? That you. Yes, it is. Okay. So the question I have though is, can't you have an inflationary spike or inflationary period, um, that starts as a supply side thing, then become a demand side thing. If you shovel in two, three, five trillion dollars into an economy in the middle of a supply side inflationary crisis. But you, you ha- there's, you're begging the question, how do you get two, three, four trillion into the economy? Because the Build presumption back better, is, baby. Yeah, but see, the presumption is that transfer payments put money in the economy, and they don't. So what happens is you have to have an increase in loan demand to increase the velocity of money supply. If we go, the Fed's balance sheet is now $8.5 trillion. It was less than a trillion before the financial crisis. They put it up to four and a half trillion in the years following the financial crisis. And we had disinflation every single year because they're fighting against a decline in the velocity of money, the, the, the each dollar's turnover in the economy. So if a lot of money is put into the economy, whether it's build back better, whether it is excessive government spending, or whether it's dropping it out of a helicopter. And if that money is pushed to the sidelines, what we've done with it is put it in excess reserves at the banks that we pay the banks 15 basis points to hold on to that money. And loan demand has dropped like a rock. So they cannot get good borrowers to borrow money. If you and I put money in our checking account and the banks go lend it out, we didn't create any new money. There's no new inflation. All we did is move money already in existence to another place, okay? Mm -hmm. For there to be new monies, they have to have a new loan generated that creates new money in the economy and circulation. QE has never resulted in a higher circulation of money. So the argument that government spending will do it has to counteract the diminishing return that we've been fighting for three decades which is the I don't want to get overly technical, although you have a very sophisticated audience. I, I do. want to more sophisticated than me on some of this stuff. Yeah. The marginal revenue product of the debt has done nothing but go down for 30 years. That's in the United States, that's in Europe, that's in the UK, that's in Japan. So that everyone understands the law of diminishing returns. That's all we're talking about here, but there's a specific reason for it is that everyone intuitively knows that the government can only spend what it's borrowed from the future. So we have taken more and more from future growth. 
3.1% real GDP growth for 60 years post-World War II. We go into the financial crisis. We spend a trillion dollars in stimulus. We put $4 trillion in uh, the Fed's balance sheet. We have this unbelievable rebound in housing. The stock market goes up 400%, and we don't have a single year above 3% real GDP growth. And we average half of that, 1.6, for 13 freaking years. This is a hangover from excessive binging of government spending that the piper now has to be paid. And that is a deflationary phenomena. And so when if you accept the algebraic formula that the money supply times the velocity is, is what we're dealing with, you have one number going higher. They're trying to get the money supply higher, but the velocity is being multiplied against it. It's holding it down. Now, so what could we do to create a Weimar-like uh, issue here? Um, the reality is that we don't monetize the liabilities of the central bank balance sheet. They're, they basically sit on the reserves of banks. And you cannot get people to act outside their best interest. Already levered companies don't want to borrow more money when they don't need it. And so I think that this is the problem we're facing. And, uh, and implicitly, many on the right are arguing for the efficacy of central planning. They're saying that the central planners could create this inflation if they wanted to, where my argument is extremely anti-government. Mm -hmm. My argument is that the government is not able to actually create wealth or incentives or prosperity. They can't, you know, you can give a guy $600. What was it Trump wanted? 2000. Mm -hmm. They did it like in three different things. You can give the guy 2000 bucks. Most of it just sits in people's savings accounts. Some people go out and spend it at the bar or they buy a new big screen, but there's no stopping the fact that at the second recipient or third recipient, it sits, mm -hmm. it doesn't continue turning over. And that is, I think, the period we're living in now. And the irony is people think that I'm arguing something good. What I'm arguing is disastrous. Mm -hmm. The Japanification of the American economy is a totally unacceptable result, economically and morally. Uh, but that's what I think we're facing. But in this particular period, that's not going to hold prices down. Prices will go higher. Uh, but if the Fed cut all QE tomorrow, we're talking about tapering, right? Right. What if they announce tomorrow, Jonah, they're done. Tapering, mm -hmm. forget it. They're just simply doing no more bond buying. Is that putting 80,000 new truck drivers in the marketplace? Mm -hmm. Is that getting those um, the pallets of goods that are stacked up at the ports? So now the ports have gotten the product, but they're sitting on pallets and they can't get them out and get them to the end destination. What does QE have to do with that at all? That's the issue we're facing. This is very helpful for me. It really is. Um, um, but I want to ask you, since you brought up uh, channeling Ben Bernanke, dropping the money out of helicopters. And I think I know your answer, um, but let's say that we did do that. Let's say that we dropped pallets of cash into poor neighborhoods where, and typically when you give poor people money, they're more likely to go out and spend it right away because they have more pent up demand for like middle-class goods and whatever. And if you're living paycheck to paycheck, the, if you get, if I gave you, if you got a pallet, you wouldn't necessarily go out and spend it because you have lots of FU money already. But if I gave it to, you know, some intern who's, who can't afford a six pack of beer, you know, more than one night a week, 
he might go right out and spend it. Wouldn't that create, or how, how is, how is that not different from putting more money on the balance sheets of banks? Okay. Well, because it, because it's different because in your analogy, we're circulating money in the economy and with QE, we're not circulating money in the economy. Okay. Okay. Um, and so is helicopter money inflationary? I will answer that question as yes, as long as I'm allowed to caveat it and say QE is not helicopter money. Mm-hmm. I know, but you're the one there who brought is, up helicopter money. You said whether yeah. you do it this way, this way, this way, or drop it from helicopters. And I'm, it just seems to me that the helicopter thing is different. One of these things is not like the others is my but, point. But we, So the mechanism we have in our country when people refer to QE as printing money is bu- is buying bonds. Mm-hmm. So they're real bonds that are owned by banks. The banks have bought them when they've been issued by the federal government to the extent they're treasury bonds. A lot of them are Fannie and Freddie mortgage related. The, bond- the banks buy them and the Fed buys them off the bank balance sheet. So there's a dual accounting entry where the, uh, the bank is credited with cash and the Fed now owns the um, liability, mm-hmm. okay? Now the, the treasury has to pay those bonds back. So the two mechanisms to make this complicated computer thing that lost not so much your audience, but it does lose the American people. It's why Ron Paul couldn't win a primary, even though he was really popular on the speaking circuit and so forth, because that I happen to disagree with most of what Ron Paul was saying, but even where I agreed with them, you just lose the audience, right? It's mm-hmm. not compelling. It's not exciting. It's not sexy. However, unlike most of the stuff that is talked about on your podcast, <laughs> this, the, how do you make, how do you turn the fed mechanisms into helicopter money? Cause obviously they're not going to literally dump, mm-hmm. you know, cash on, on, in the streets. It would be forgiving the liability. Mm-hmm. If the mm-hmm. Treasury said, we're going to pay back everyone we owe Treasury bonds to, we're going to pay back Japan, we're going to pay back China, we're going to pay back this widow, and we're going to pay back this pension fund, but we're not going to pay back the Fed. Okay, that's something right. they could do. And that would become backdoor helicopter money. Mm-hmm. I would argue that's inflationary. But they can't do it legally. And that's a major difference uh, that for at least for now, and I got to be honest, these guys have come up with incredibly creative ways to get around the limits that Congress put on the Federal Reserve. Mm -hmm. Uh, But technically speaking, Japan doesn't have to get around anything. They can just do it Mm -hmm. and they still have to kind of work to get around it here. So helicopter money is not likely to happen anytime soon. And wouldn't fix the problem. It wouldn't fix anything because even then, uh, it would be a sugar high of inflation, by the way. That money would get spent. And more than likely, the neighborhood where the money circulated, they'd go and spend it and the people that received it would go spend it. But then that fizzles because eventually, if it doesn't get put into productive use, the velocity dies down. Mm -hmm. You know, you can only go buy a six pack from someone who buys some vodka from someone who buys cigarettes, (laughs) Like, like unproductive consumption. This is why I'm a uh, uh, supply cider and why Jean-Baptiste say was so right is you have to have production to keep the thing going. And that, that would lead to a sugar high of consumption to make Keynes happy for a couple months and it would be inflationary. But then even then it would suffer from the law of diminishing returns. So I, I, I got to keep people anonymous here, but I, I, I've 
friend who's in a major business and he was telling me how he was at a meeting with a bunch of um people who work for him or with them and they were like someone said do you guys know anybody who's not having a great year and they went around the table and was like i, I know one used car dealership that's having trouble because they can't get the cars but other than that everyone's doing great and this was not seen as a good sign for the economy this was seen as that there's a lot of bad money out there chasing too few opportunities and um and that there has to be you know an adjustment coming sometime soon a do you agree with that and b what the what how does this end yeah, I don't I don't know. And and it's a bad idea for people to make predictions because whatever people predict is not going to be what exactly happens. Right. There's going to be unexpected and there's a sort of spontaneous order to this. If I can maintain my uh, Hayekian sympathies here, um, what I do believe is it will be fixed and I do believe it'll be primarily fixed by market forces and that it probably will be fixed quicker than people expect. Mm -hmm. um, but it will not be fixed in a linear fashion and it will affect certain sectors, industries, and geographies more than others. Um, I'm concerned about a lot of the things that people are pressuring policymakers to do, making it worse, not better. That's probably the conservative in me talking to some degree, but it's also the market purist. I, I, don't, I don't think there's much they can do that will not make it worse. Mm -hmm. You know, um, now there's things that they've done that have made it worse that they could undo. You know, I, I remain totally perplexed when they announced that they were going to have the ports open 24 hours because I was completely unaware that the ports were not open <laughs> 24 hours. It just struck me as stunning. And so there's things like that. But, you know, I've heard some people say they should... um uh, right now, there's laws against truck drivers that are under 21. Like we should allow emergency licensing for 16 to 20 year olds, and mm. just, I don't know some, some of that stuff. Uh, I mean, I'm open to you know understanding it better and seeing some of the different positions on it all. But for the most part, uh, this the, I hate to be fundamentalist, mm -hmm. but the cure for high prices is high prices. And if there are people who believe, I mean, like, why is the semiconductor thing getting fixed? Because Intel is spending $20 billion to go compete with Samsung and Taiwan Semi. Mm -hmm. Why are they doing it? Because semiconductors are uh, four times more profitable than they were uh, before all this. And because Broadcom is eating their lunch and has a CAGR, a compounded annual growth rate, that is triple theirs. They see the market opportunity. They have the infrastructure to go compete. But they can't pitch a tent and be up shovel ready the next day. So it takes a little time. But it is prices as signaling devices that is creating the economic activity that will pull us out of it. Um, yeah, so I mean, like, I mean, just to get back to our earlier conversation, um, you know, the conservative counterbalance to pure market efficiency is simply, in some ways, Burkean prudence, right? And so I am for removing barriers to entry for people to become truck drivers as a general principle. Um, you know, it's like occupational licensure I have big problems with. At the same time, I think a prudent person can say, 
let's not go crazy with this and let 16-year-olds drive 18-wheeler semi-trucks going 80 miles an hour. Um, so there, there are trade-offs there in terms of what is a reasonable policy. And and by, by the way, the, I, I meant it as a, like a funny analogy, but in all seriousness, more than the 16 to 20-year-old issue, it's the uh, drug test. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So would we be interested in solving for our 80,000 truck driver shortage by allowing 80,000 potheads to fill those positions? Right. And maybe they're not potheads. Maybe they don't have an addiction or anything, but maybe they're just people that have casually smoked marijuana in the last 30 days and are not eligible to, to pass a test right now. I, again, I'm with you on the side of prudence here. That strikes me as problematic. But I bet there are people that would have expert positions and white papers and, and stats and argument to make. And I'm all for them making the argument. Yeah, but I mean, that, yeah I'm not in a rush to, to see that happen. One solution, I mean, again, if you're trying to think of ways to do this without it being the heavy hand of the state, one way to regulate that is to allow the liability laws to allow the insurers of these trucks to charge massively higher premiums for any company that allows drivers who fail drug tests to still drive. And I'm sure that at some point there's a price point where you can make a prudential judgment. Okay. So this guy, he's, you know, he's not on heroin, you know, he, he smoked weed 20 days ago or whatever, but he's worked for us in the past. You know, you can make, let the mark, let the price inflict the pain at the decision point. And my hunch is, is that, that that would solve a big chunk of the problem, but not all of the problem, right? And I, I agree. I agree. And you can do that with all sorts of things up and down, you know, the economy. Is, is that if 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 you're going to do something that is wildly reckless and creates a tort or whatever or legal act, you know, puts you on the hook, you know, like my hunch is, is that Alec Baldwin will not be able to make any more movies where there are guns in the movie, you know? Yeah. Um and that's fine. You don't need to pass a law for that. You just need the market to punish people, you know, to make the risk premium not worth handling, you know, tolerating for, for employers in some way. But even if we weren't in a supply shortage and a labor shortage and all these things, the fact that there are, that there even is price fixing and insurance premiums is a market distorting event that is wholly unnecessary. And so if we have to relieve ourselves of that intervention right now to get a, a desired outcome, it's very unfortunate because if we didn't ever need it to begin with, mm -hmm. the, the price signaling, the price mechanism there would be a very powerful tool in resolving a lot of it. And then when you said it would solve a lot of it and not all of it, I agree, but I think it's a beautiful sentence because <laughs> fortunately, I don't feel the burden that we get this perfect. Right. The utopian objective is just uh, totally divorced from our our set of objectives here. And so if you can make it a lot better, but it's not perfect, I, that strikes me as a pretty reasonable goal. Well, that's, I mean, I mean, that's the argument for the market. I don't, I don't know any serious person outside of, you know, some really weird anarcho-capitalist or Randian sort of fringes who says the free market is the solution to all our problems or that the free market makes everybody happy and rich or any of that kind of stuff. It's a no free lunch proposition. It's better than the alternatives. Yeah. And I think the historical verdict on that is enormous. And, and so like, you know, you, you and I both have a very libertarian streak when it comes to a lot of things. And I don't know where you come down on, on 
pot legalization or whatever, but let's just sort of assume that you're sort of in the Panuvrian camp, that it should be fine and all that. That's fine. Um, that's one principle. And then it runs up against another principle, which is the right, right of employers to discriminate based upon rational reasons. You know, you can't discriminate based on skin color, but an employer who says, I don't care if it's legal, you are not driving this liquefied natural gas truck if you've been smoking weed. And yeah. that employer should be free to make that choice too. And this is one of these places where there is tension. It's a good tension to have. And deciding when the state gets involved in alleviating that tension versus letting a free society work these work out these solutions on their own, that's another tension. And sometimes the state does have to jump in. But as a as a rule of thumb, we would rather err on the side of the state not getting into it because there's that knowledge problem thing. And the employer knows more about trucking and the truck driver knows more about trucking than any friggin' bureaucrat a thousand miles away. That That's exactly right. So it is very much a knowledge problem situation. It's a free exchange. And, and then ultimately, it's a matter of free market advocates avoiding the utopian fallacy that were so critical of the socialist and central planners making. If one says we uh, uh, reject the idea of central planning as a mechanism to creating utopia because we believe the free market will generate utopia. Then all we've done is gone from frying pan to fire. Mm -hmm. Utopianism is what has to be rejected on this side of glory. And while we're here on earth in the constrained vision of society, uh, we need to be presenting the market as the imperfect solution and doing so on the, uh, without apology for where freedom can go. Freedom can go to some bad decisions. Freedom can lead to some undesirable outcomes, but never accepting that there was a scenario available that lacked a trade-off. And, and when we hold, keep our eyes on the ball of the no free lunch principle, uh, we can do much better. I could go on about all this for quite a while, but that's probably a great place to end it. Um, Dave Bonson, thanks so much for coming back on. We will get you your jacket once these supply chain issues are, are satisfied. Um, we're gonna make we're gonna make some fans really upset. So let's just say it real quick: post millennialism. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I got you know in this this book I'm reading the, the the reactionary mind thing. You know, I mean, since you brought it up, you baited me. You know. One of my great peeves, which is how we, I kind of got onto this post-millennialism thing in the first place, was the, a lot of the early, a lot of the progressives, Richard Ellie and these guys, they believed that, re, that redemption was collective, yeah. that you could redeem a whole society from above with the right ordering of social institutions and policies and whatnot. And again, I'm not a Christian, but like my understanding of Christianity Jonah, is, you're not yet. I understand. I, I hear that okay. all a lot. Um, is that I say it with love. There is no transit of property that if all of your neighbors convert to Christianity and become very good, believing, sincere Christians, that might help you one day make the individual choice to become a Christian, but it doesn't make you any better of a person if you haven't taken that individual leap um, of faith in some ways. And mm -hmm. this is one of my great problems with the theology of a lot of the integralists is that they think that if they could get the institutions and society arranged just so it will have a salvific effect on everybody within the society. And it, 
St. Augustine doesn't believe that. You know, I mean, that's not, no, no, that's not in City of God but, or City of Man, you know I mean? But they're doing the chicken or egg wrong is the problem. So this is classic uh, Abraham Kuyper. This is John Calvin. This is most of, well, not most of, this is over half of our founding fathers. You, it is individual regeneration, as you say, personal bottom-up transformation that accepts the truth claims of Scripture that then leads to greater reform in the institutions. It is not, let's fix the institutions right. so we can then, but then do I believe that a more righteous population uh, that ha then uh, has more um, reform-minded institutions, nothing controversial, nothing um, uh, coerced, just the stuff Yuval talks about sure. all the time. Right. Do I believe that that creates a virtuous cycle in the society? Of course I do. Uh, there, but that is the polar opposite of some of something statist or theocratic or top down. Yeah, I mean, and, and that's not like if you go back and you read, and again, this is one of my big peeves is people think these are all new arguments, like the stuff about social conscience yeah. and corporations. Go read the debates between the sort of the National Review crowd and Triumph, the Brent Pozell, um, yeah. uh, Catholic theocratic enterprise. His argument against um, uh, Frank Meyer and these guys is that no, 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 a theocratic state will actually be can can coerce more virtue out of people by making them behave according to virtuous laws um, through coercion, even if it doesn't come from a right place. I get the argument and he actually does a really good job of making that argument, but it doesn't actually on net produce more saved souls or more decent people. I hold a well, gun to your head. It doesn't produce more virtue. I'm sorry. It doesn't produce more virtue. Yeah, no, because I, I tautologically virtue can't be coerced. I agree. I agree. I'm and this. I am a fusionist to the bitter end. Um, so you baited me. Okay. Uh, we did it. I, I, we just, we just exploded our star ratings. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I'm sure we will return to this many times again in the future. Dave Bonson, the book is 200. Uh, there's no free lunch, 250 economic truths. I highly recommend it. We'll put it all in the show notes and thanks again for coming on. Thanks so much for having me, Jonah. Okay. Uh, David has left the uh, studio to go do his whole master of the universe routine. Um, I hope people found that illuminating. I think I got a better, I did a better job of getting him to explain the inflation stuff this time than last time, but it could just be that I've now read much more about the inflation stuff. So I understood it better than last time. I don't know. I, and, and to be brutally honest, I don't care. Um, it was fun to talk to David and, um, um, I'm sure there will be a mixed feedback about some of the talking points that we had, but that's fine too. Uh, everybody, I think this is, you're not going to, I, we're not sure of the order yet, but if I don't talk to you again, have a wonderful Thanksgiving. Um, and I'll probably say this at the end of the solo remnant too. So you'll hear it twice, but, uh, spend time with your family. Uh, that's where all the really important stuff happens in your life anyway. And, um, um, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast.
Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.